0: We discussed some difficult topics in this episode, so I just want to let you know, it might be triggering for sensitive listeners, but it's info that you'd want to have. Electrocast.
1: I lost my confidence. I lost. I lost everything, but it happened relatively gradually, and so I didn't realize it, and also... This is very confusing, too. The other reason I didn't tell people and I didn't leave him is that in between the violent times, it was still the best relationship I'd ever had. You know, it's classic trauma bonding. He hurt me and then he healed
0: me. Okay, it basically comes down to this. You have to forget everything your culture has told you about being a woman. And then you can begin your day. Hi, I'm Jill Sorensen, and you are listening to the new feminist podcast, The Place for Common Sense Feminism. One in three women will become a victim of an abusive relationship. Domestic violence can happen to anybody. A lot of people wonder, if a man hits you, well, why don't you just leave? Well, today's guest knows something about that. My friend, author, and expert on domestic violence, Leslie Morgan Steiner, she had it all. She graduated at Harvard, had a top job at Seventeen Magazine in New York City, and had unlimited possibilities ahead, until she fell in love with the wrong person. She survived the terrifying relationship with her life barely intact and wrote a New York Times bestseller about it. Her book, Crazy Love, takes you inside the violent, devastating world of abuse of love. The title of her popular TED Talk sums it up perfectly. From the Ivy League to a gun at my head. I caught up with Leslie and we started from the beginning. This interview was recorded during the lockdown, and it is fussy in some places, but I, I didn't want to re-record it because Leslie's story is so riveting. So Leslie. If you can start by telling us about your childhood, like where did you grow up? Uh, What did you want to become? Uh, What were your parents' relationship like? Take us through quickly your childhood. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in
1: Washington, D.C. My father was a lawyer and my mother was a teacher. And I grew up in a wonderfully crazy family where what really mattered to my parents was education, um, sports, particularly competitive sports um, and animals. <laughs> we really? had we had like snakes and skunks and cats and turtles. Like my mom really, really loved animals. And I loved oh. my mom very much. Oh. My mom was a huge influence on my life. And the only thing that was really complicated about my childhood is that my mother was an alcoholic. Um, oh. She was an active daily drinker and she she got drunk really kind of every day. So I grew up with this idea that... That intimacy was complicated, that you could love somebody and rely on them, but then have them have a really dramatic personality change every day. And I also grew up with the idea that you had families had to hide secrets from the outside world because my mother was so respected in our community. She had gone to Radcliffe. She was a very beautiful, accomplished, intelligent, brilliant even woman. She ran our local PTA. You know, she just, she did everything. And It was very important to her and to our family that we hide her alcoholism from the outside world So I grew up thinking that that was normal I didn't have any violence in my life and it never occurred to me that any man on the planet would ever want to hurt me I really loved boys. I was close to my father and my brother and I had it was just one of those little girls who had a million boyfriends from the time I was in first grade. I just, I always had, a, I just liked boys a lot. They were my friends and then they were just very comfortable around them. And I was like, besides that, I was sort of like a shy, nerdy, goody two shoes kind of kid who followed all the rules and um, wanted to help everybody. Now, um, if your mom
0: was an alcoholic, did that, so you would have a lack of trust that you could rely on her then. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yes. So my
1: mother was really the the hero in my life because she was just like so many moms are. She was the center Mm -hmm. of my world. And I was very close to her. And I trusted her implicitly with everything. And I relied on her for survival in that little kid way. And it took me until I was about 10 or 11 to figure it out. But she, she got drunk every day. And so every day, starting around... Anywhere between five and eight o'clock, my mother, as I knew her, really disappeared, Um, and it made us all vulnerable to neglect and abuse um, by other people. Um, And we were sort of on our own after that. And we, it was just the chaos of it. You know, we we had there were four of us kids, and we had our own rooms, our bedrooms, but we very rarely slept there. We sort of because my mom was drunk, she never put us to bed. So we would fall asleep watching TV or in in a sibling's room or there was a sort of an acceptable level of chaos um, that I just thought was normal and that I actually thought was kind of cool for a long time. And my father was never there because he was working very hard. He was a workaholic and he didn't want to be around my mom when she was drunk. So he sort of left us um, to our own devices, which was not fair. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I mean, this was all, you know, just what I thought. That life would be growing up. And both of my parents had gone to to Harvard. Um, my father was actually the first person in his family to ever even finish high school. So it was really a big deal for him to have such a great education. And my mother was sort of the opposite. She was like the the twentieth person in her family to go to Harvard. and she was her mother had gone to Radcliffe as well. So she was this very elite waspy woman who'd married a really poor, man from texas who was the first one in his family to go to harvard and it was an interesting match but um it again added to sort of some of the tensions that we had at home and how you know just like all kids i loved my parents and i wanted to protect them um and so i bought into this mythology that um everything was perfect in our life all the time and I pleased my parents, I worked very hard in school, I went to Harvard myself, and it wasn't until after I graduated and moved to New York to work at Seventeen Magazine, that's when the trouble really began for me, When and at that time, my parents were splitting up, they'd been married for 32 years, and they um, were getting divorced because of my mom's drinking, and I think that just as I was losing that family and becoming an adult woman myself is when I wanted to kind of unconsciously recreate the family that I had grown up in and I wanted family. And that's when I met my abuser. I think I was incredibly vulnerable, um, even though I didn't know it, you know, I thought I was on top of the world. I had this great job. Um, I was living in New York. I was financially independent for the first time in my life and, I really, you know, felt like my life was just beginning, but in the backdrop, I was very sad about my parents' divorce. So you're working at, um, 17 magazine and then, uh, how did you meet your ex? So I met him. I'll never forget the night, even though it was a long time ago. I, it was in January and I left 17 to have dinner with my best friend from childhood. But anyway, she had just gotten engaged. And I was very happy for her, but I also felt like, oh my God, you know, when your first friend from childhood gets engaged, I had such a typical reaction. I thought, you know what, no one is ever going to want to marry me. <laughs> Which was, I was just feeling that way and it was sleeting and I was totally bedraggled getting on the subway. You know, I never took taxis because I didn't have enough money to do it. Um, and I would just like taking a taxi back to my little place in um, uh, it wasn't in Greenwich village. It was in the, the meatpacking districts. It was like a super cool neighborhood near the Chelsea hotel. And there were very few people on the subway, but, and I sat next to this guy and everybody else got off the subway and I didn't move away from him. um, because my mother had taught me to never hurt anybody's feelings. And I was afraid that if I moved away, he would think I was rejecting him. So he started chatting me up and, um, he had just graduated from an Ivy League school, too, um, and he worked at a really big, impressive Wall Street firm, and he had a nice cashmere coat on, and he seemed perfectly normal and great. And I gave him my first name and that I worked at 17, and I thought I'd never see him again. But he tracked me down about a month later at my job, um, and he I was so flattered that he had tracked me down. You know, I was dating... I was dating so much. I mean, I loved being in New York and being single. You know, I would literally, my, I had a roommate who was an actress, and we both did the same thing. We'd go out with one guy for lunch and another guy for dinner. And we just, so we dated, like, we, we had, like, f- at least 14 dates a, a week. I mean, we just were very prolific. And so I just thought nothing of this guy. Um, and I went out with him a couple times, and he was, like, kind of funny and kind of nerdy, and I didn't think that much of him. And I was just about on the verge of telling him that I wasn't going to see him again when I had a dream about him. And you just can't make this up. In the dream, for the first time in my life, I had an orgasm in my sleep. And it was in the dream when he touched me. And so I thought the next day, I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't say goodbye to this guy. Maybe it's like God intervening. You know, God had us meet on the subway and God is telling me not to do this. Like I just had this strange sense that he would be very important to me. And soon after that, we started dating pretty seriously. And I just was, I became, I got madly in love quite quickly. And I think I had never really been in love before. You know, I had had boyfriends I had dated, but nothing ever like this.
0: So when you look back, do you see any, did you see any warning signs? Well, now when
1: I look back, Jill, I see all the warning signs. First of all, my best friend who had just gotten engaged, her nickname for him was the psycho subway killer because she thought it was so weird. I had met a guy on the subway and that was like a red flag that I didn't listen to. Um, He also told me, he confessed to me in a very, heartfelt way that he'd been terribly, terribly physically abused as a child. Um, and it instead of it warning me away, it made me kind of love him and respect him more. Mm-hmm. So there were warning signs that I didn't understand. He gave me a key to his apartment when we'd been dating only a few weeks. And I just thought I was lucky that I'd found the one man in New York City who wasn't afraid of commitment. So there were a lot of red flags that I missed, but the biggest one, and I still can't believe I didn't break up with him because of this. <sighs> So our early sex life was really intoxicating, as you would imagine. Um, And one night, he strangled me during sex, and he climaxed from strangling me. And I mean, Jill, I was really innocent. I had never, I I was very vanilla in my sexual tastes and proclivities and experience, and nothing like this had ever happened to me before. And. I threw up afterward. Oh, my God.
0: But what what did you
1: say? I mean, what what did he say? He actually did say something. As he was strangling me, he looked me full in the face and he said, I own you. (sighs) And I I mean, denial is a really powerful force. I didn't. What did you feel? I felt like he was going to kill me. I mean, I felt like I I, I just had no idea. But I... (sighs) he fell asleep right afterwards. And I just, I didn't, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my instincts. And I, I just sort of thought, well, you know, like, okay, maybe that was a little kinky and maybe he likes that. Um, and trust my instincts and I, and I never talked to him about it. I never told him not to do it again, but he never did it again. Um, but what
0: did he think? What did he say when you threw up?
1: I mean, I know it sounds unbelievable,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it sounds unbelievable to me to tell you this story but it's the truth I didn't tell him he didn't notice I didn't mention it to him I never told anybody that story and there were looking back there were many things like that big things and little things like what else well I remember once so you know I worked at 17 I had no money so I, I dressed I like raided the fashion closet there and I I was like a master at putting together great looking, but really cheap outfits. And one of my favorites was to wear a really short skirt with one of my dad's old, um, like tweed, uh, lawyer jackets, you know, and I roll up the sleeves. I mean, I looked really cool, but it was like a free outfit. Mm -hmm. And I remember putting it on one night and, um, Connor saying, you know, if you wear a skirt, that short people are just going to think you're a slut. And he said it like with a real edge You know, I worked at a as fashion magazine. Like you're expected to have a little bit of sass, and I remember thinking, God, that's just so weird that he says that. Um, So there were things like that. There were moments like that where it was frightening. But this is the thing that I think people don't understand about abuse: is that first of all, they don't ever hit you on the first date. He had not. He didn't hit me. He didn't. He wasn't angry. He didn't have any of these like things that you think of as domestic violence or abuse and interspersed with all the weird comments about my skirt and strangling me during sex and all these other things. It was so wonderful to be with
0: him. And I don't mean like... So you uh, compartmentalized strangling? You decided, you just decided like, I'm I'm not going to focus on it it also seemed irrelevant compared to how close we were and how much he trusted me and
1: how much i trusted him and how we felt like little kids together i mean it just felt it was magic being with him we laughed all the time i felt like i could tell him anything i told i didn't even need to tell him things he could see right into me and know what my Biggest dreams and biggest fears were. He, I'd never felt so understood by another person in my life. He understood me more than my own sisters and my mother and that best friend from childhood. I, I just, there was no separation between the two of us. We were so, so, so close. I almost felt like God, he could do anything and I wouldn't leave him.
0: So, so what was the timeline from the time when you first met him uh, until the time he verbally or physically abused you? Uh, about six months. Mm-hmm. And I loved everything about him. He was s-
1: the smartest man I'd ever known. He was really funny. He was really self-deprecating and he worshiped me. He told me all the time that I was the most beautiful girl he'd ever dated, that he loved that I was so smart that I had gone to Harvard, that I was trying to help teenage girls at Seventeen magazine. Like he just he he loved me. Did any of your friends like him? It just didn't make any difference to me, um, my family did not like him. my mother didn't like him, but you know what, Jill? She had never liked any boy or man I'd ever dated, so it didn't mean anything to me and my parents were going through this divorce, so they were very distracted with their own life and my little sister who who I was very close to, she was seven years younger, she loved him, and I just felt like you know it just it, all that matters is that I like him so what was the first time? I mean, one of the things that's confusing about abuse and an abuse timeline is how do you define the first time? Because abusers are not that dumb. They don't make it a really clear thing. They, they test your limits and then they back off. So he tested my limits with the strangling, he, by, with the comments he was making. I remember once he, um, a boy who I had known from college called me just to see how I was doing. And Connor was so jealous that he punched a wall in our, we had moved in with each other at this point, And he said, you know, you're really lucky that I didn't punch you. So he would say he would threaten and slowly ratchet it up. So this is a very mm-hmm. clever thing to do because by the time they actually start abusing you, you're used to it and you haven't drawn a boundary. And so they feel like they can get away with it and you feel sort of like an idiot. And that's what happened to me. There were many times where he had been possessive or jealous or Um, done cruel things to me. Um, And I hadn't walked away then. I had objected. I had cried. i had asked him not to do things like that before um, again, but I had never ended the relationship. So by the time he actually physically abused me, we were living together in a small town in New England. I was totally financially dependent on him. I was really isolated from my friends and family because I left my job at 17 to be with him. And um, it was also five days before our wedding and the the first time he physically abused you he strangled me again it was early in the morning he was angry at me for over something meaningless and he he choked me and strangled me and hit my head up against the wall with the chokehold
0: and and what what triggered it
1: um i yelled at the computer um i was frustrated getting my computer set up and it was very early in the morning he was getting ready to go to work i was still in my nightgown and i yelled at the computer and you know, he came into my office and he put his hands around my neck and he squeezed so tightly that I couldn't breathe and I couldn't Jeez. scream. And the whole time he was yelling, he was saying, you can't scream like that. My mother used to scream like that. You can never scream like that. I mean, he obviously was having a PTSD flashback to the abuse of his childhood, triggered by me yelling like that. But I didn't know any of that. And and this is five days before your wedding. I knew that I had to call off the wedding. I knew that I had to tell, you know, I had to call the police. I had to tell my parents. I I knew all of that. And so my denial crept in. And this is another very typical thing that happens to abuse victims is denial is really powerful. And my denial said, you know, he didn't really hit you. And it's true. He hadn't hit me. But he threw you against the wall. But he hadn't like hit me in the face. You know, it's like the, the things that yeah, our denial yeah. tell us. That's what my denial said. My denial said, he's very, very sorry, even though he hadn't apologized. It was about a, an hour or two after he left that my denial really crept in and started. So, so what ha- happened in the moment when he strangled you? Like what went through your mind? People who have been strangled know what happens, but I'll try to explain to somebody who has not been strangled. So it, what's it really terrifying about it is that you can't breathe and you can't talk. And so it's as if the entire world stops. It is it's it's a terrifying thing. And it was like a monster and not the man who I loved was doing it to me. And he was completely out of control. His face was red, his eyes were red. He was gone. Mm-hmm. And when it was over, I was just relieved that I could breathe again. I was really relieved that I was alive. Oh, and it was a it was a very dramatic Uh, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of adrenaline sort of during it and then afterwards, and then he was gone. So I knew, I knew what it was. I knew that I had to end things, but then, you know, I really loved him. And I started thinking about all of the great times we had together and that I couldn't cancel the wedding and that he was really sorry. I was sure he was sorry. Did you bring it up to him or say, nope, I never. So what happened was I, I never, I didn't, i didn't answer his calls all day. he called me many times, and I wouldn't answer his calls because I wanted to scare him and he came home that night, and we did, did never talk about it and five days later, you know the bruises had just healed on my neck, and I put on my mother's wedding dress, and I stood up in the church and I married him and I felt numb I felt really numb um, I felt like I didn't know what to do and I was scared, but I my denial really was speaking very loudly to me. And it was saying, you could handle this. You're strong. You're smart. You love him. He had such a terrible childhood. He's scared of getting married, of course, but
0: you love him so much, it'll be okay. So you were going to try to fix him, to to heal him?
1: You know, so many women had let him down, including his mother. And I... I I thought I'm not going to be that woman. I'm going to be the one who stands by him and who helps him. And I can take this and I'll protect him. That's what a lot of people feel, like they are the protector of their abuser. And I knew he was never going to do it again, Jill. I I knew he wouldn't risk losing me because I was that girl who he loved so much and who meant so much to him and our love was so special. I knew he would not ever,
0: ever do it again. And at that time you had no information about domestic violence, that it always increases over time. You had asked me right at that moment,
1: if I was a victim of if, of domestic violence, I would have just laughed. I would have said, no, no, that that's not what this is. I didn't understand that. That's what it was. And then he beat me twice more on our honeymoon. <sighs> and Oh, just just, it was, it was just a, a dam had broken. Yeah. He hit me in the face while I was driving. Um, he threw food at me. both of those things happened. Both of the honeymoon incidents happened when I was driving our car and And then it just we just sort of settled into this life of being very isolated and having these awful fights where he would hit me or beat me or strangle me or push me downstairs or do something crazy and then and would it increase the violence each time? It's hard mm-hmm. to say if it increased i don't know it's it's it was all so awful, Jill, that to me, it was just got more frequent. Did you tell anyone? No. No, no one you told? What would happen if I told anybody? I knew that, that you guys would make me leave and that you would get him in trouble. I mean, I knew that this was his responsibility, that, it was, that it, I wasn't provoking it and I wasn't at fault. I knew that it was a problem in him based on, you know, related to his childhood. I knew that. But I didn't want to get him in trouble because I loved him. And I wanted the violence to stop. And I wanted us to go back to the magical early days. But I didn't want to end the relationship. I couldn't end the relationship.
0: Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Cast Podcasts and hear the culture.
1: podcasts Pretty soon into the marriage, he bought guns. We lived in a state where guns were legal, and he bought three guns, and he had them all the time, and he used them against me all the time, threatening to kill me, threatening to kill our dog. My denial was so strong that I wasn't scared. I'm scared now, remembering it, but at the time I wasn't scared. It's like I, I remember thinking, Oh God, this again? You know, does he really think he's that I believe him that he's gonna pull the trigger? So you weren't afraid? I was Good afraid, girl. but I was totally numb. And I I lost I lost oh. myself in all of that. Mm. I lost my confidence. I lost I lost everything. But it happened relatively gradually. And so I didn't realize it. And also This is very confusing, too. The other reason I didn't tell people and I didn't leave him is that in between the violent times, it was still the best relationship I'd ever had. You know, it's classic trauma bonding. He hurt me and then he healed me. He hurt me and he made me feel okay. And every one of those incidents made me bond to him more. And, you know, we were living a very isolated life. He'd set up this isolation at this tiny town in New England. Really so that he could abuse me with impunity that was part of the psychological trap The fact that I was financially dependent upon him because I had left my job to get married to him and I was a freelance writer the shame of it um, I didn't think I deserved to be abused, but I was Ashamed that I was staying with somebody And that I couldn't help him and so what ended up happening is that I didn't tell anybody but two people guessed what was happening and they confronted me about it very, very nicely. Very gently, I would say, rather. And they told me that they, they noticed that something had changed in me. Someone from home or someone from your new town? So it was, this is so strange. One was my best friend from college, um, who was a very kind and wonderful woman. And the other one, strangely enough, was Connor's best friend from his new job. And this man, who was a little bit older, had gone to Harvard as well as I had. So we had that in common. And he he really, he adored both of us. And in some ways that helped me very much because he wasn't demonizing Connor. He didn't come to me and say, hey, you know, I want to make a play for you. Get rid of this loser guy. He came to me and said, I'm so worried about, about both of you, but I'm really worried about you because something has changed in you, and I need to know that you're safe. I think he knew what was happening. I think perhaps he'd grown up in an abusive home, or literally what this man said to me was, Leslie, do you know that your voice shakes when Connor's in the room? And when he leaves, it doesn't. And that's all he really needed to say. And I, I, He went on to say, I need to know you're safe. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you both. Um, but the fact that he didn't attack Connor made it easier for me to hear what he was saying because he wasn't criticizing Connor. That would have pushed me towards Connor. I would have been very defensive. So those two friends really, they were priceless to me. Just have two friends who knew what was happening and who believed me and who were worried about me. And that's what broke my denial. And that's the most important thing for any abuse victim is to have your denial broken.
0: And it took me another two years after that to leave him. And explain to me when when you're saying you had your denial broken because someone else could see. Someone saw it and those two people, they held up a
1: mirror to me because I remember both of them separately talking to them about it. And what I saw on their faces was they were terrified for me. They were sad and they were scared. And to see friends who love you with that look on their face, it really got through to me. And I, I knew I wasn't fooling anybody. I wasn't fooling them if they had guessed. But also what they really helped me to do is to not fool myself anymore. I couldn't lie to myself anymore. To see those two extraordinarily sweet and kind friends who wanted nothing from me. They just wanted me to be happy, to see how scared they were for me. It really changed me forever. And it it helped me slowly over time figure out how to leave and to plan my escape, which took a long time. It took a long time, mostly because I didn't want to leave him. I still wanted to give
0: him many more chances, and I did. So was there a defining moment? I mean, when was the first time you think you knew, like, I have to leave?
1: Well, I tried to leave many times. You know, I would get mad or scared, and I would leave, and I would come back really quickly, literally like within a few minutes, because I was so bonded to him. And what it felt like to me at the time is that I loved him so much that I couldn't leave and I couldn't give up on him. But the time when I really knew that I was done was about two years after those friends confronted me. We were in graduate school together, and I had given him an ultimatum about six months before. This is the only time I really confronted him about it. And I had said, you can't do this to me anymore. I won't have children with you if you... And what made you confront him? That friend of mine, had she had said something that really struck me. She had said to me, you know, you can't have children with him. And she's a pediatrician. I mean, she loves children so much. And she was right. And I knew it. I knew I couldn't have children with him. I couldn't do that to children. And I couldn't do it to myself. And so that is what had gave me the courage to confront Connor. And he was so great. He apologized. He cried. He said, you know, it's, it's just because of what happened to me as a little kid. I don't want to hurt you. I just lose my temper. And I'm so sorry. And you're my family, you're my wife, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I'll never
0: do it again. And for 6 months he didn't. And then you could not protect yourself, but you could have compassion for someone you didn't know, like a child you didn't know. That's what happens to a lot of women actually, and it's what happened to me. And and also I wanted children
1: so badly. It was like the only thing that I loved as much as Connor was the thought of becoming a mom myself. And that helped me to give him an ultimatum. And then, then he broke it. It, He went for six months without hurting me, which was a long time. But then one night he just, um, he lost his mind. He was angry at me because I had, um, he wanted to cancel a trip that we were going on and I wanted to go. And I told him that I was going to go anyway. And it just triggered that defiance triggered an incredibly vicious beating where he strangled me several times. He I was unconscious for most of it. He kicked me, he, he and he had a black belt in karate and a black belt, a black sash in Kung Fu. He was a very strong and powerful guy. He barricaded me in our bedroom. He broke my favorite wedding picture over my head. I mean, he did a lot of awful things. And I knew that I was, if I survived, I mean, I thought he was gonna kill me. And I knew that if I made it out, that I was gonna leave him. I just, I, I knew it. I, I knew it. I didn't know how I was going to. And I didn't know what it would take to do it, but I knew I was going to. With well, you probably knew you would die. I knew that it was him or me, and I had to choose, and I couldn't have both. And the only reason I may, I'm here today is that in that moment, I chose me. And Thank I. God. it was awful. It was awful. The police came. There, It was just uh, uh, horrible. But the the police helped me. They were very kind to me. And very matter-of-fact, I filed a restraining order. I. Broke the silence by telling all of my friends and family that night when I got home from the police station and filed filing the paperwork, and I I just told everybody um, because I knew I needed their help, and that was. It still took a long time to really leave and to divorce him and to get clear of him, but I knew in the pit of my stomach that I could not be with him again. I and I literally, Jill, I couldn't be alone with him. I couldn't be in a room alone with him. I would start to hyperventilate and shake and. I was so afraid of him and if even though it's been over 25 years since I've seen him Mm -hmm. If he walked into the room today, I would still start to shake. It's like fear like that is just it gets in your bones It made it impossible to reconcile with him, which was actually very helpful It was sort of like I listened to my body. My body was like you cannot be with this person You can't be alone with him. You can't be in the same room with him and I I listened and I used that as a guide. And also all of my friends and family were absolutely committed to making sure I never went back with him.
0: And after you left, I mean, we hear that abusers get so much worse. They get the most dangerous after you have the courage to leave them.
1: That's, I mean, that is true. It's statistically true that most abusers, um, you're leaving them. You're abandoning them. You're, you having the guts to leave them really triggers them. And it did with Connor too. He stalked me for a couple of weeks. He cried and begged and pleaded with me to go back with him. And I I just couldn't and wouldn't. And um, then almost like somebody flicked a switch, he let me go. He stopped pursuing me. And, and he actually, he got involved with somebody else right away, um, which was hard for me to deal with. It was very bracing. But I had a lawyer at this point, a divorce lawyer, and the divorce lawyer very wisely said, that's the best thing that could ever happen to you because now he's going to be focused on somebody else. And it was really sad for her, uh, whoever she was. I don't know who she was, but it was it gave me my freedom. So I was a, a real exception in that he, somehow something in him let me f- be free. And it, it's very rare. And I'm very lucky. One of the only reasons I can speak out now and be a domestic violence advocate and have written Crazy Love and my TED Talk is because he let me go and because I didn't have children with him. And I just wasn't bound by anything except psychological dependence at that point.
0: Now, if you are in an abusive relationship and you realize this is not right, what are some steps you can take? The most important thing to do is to tell somebody who you trust and who will believe you.
1: It's the most important thing because it will break down your denial by telling somebody. And it's the simplest thing that you can do. And it doesn't matter who it is if it's your best friend or your boss or a coworker or your sister, it just doesn't matter. Tell somebody who is going to take your side in all this. And it also has to be somebody who is willing to keep this silent for a while because you might need a long time to safely plan your escape. But the most important thing is to tell somebody. Even if you just call an anonymous hotline, you gotta you got to break it, that kind of illusion that things are okay and that it's going to somehow magically resolve itself. I also think it's very important to educate yourself about abuse. It's so easy to do now because there are so many really good websites and a lot of information about the warning signs and the red flags. I have them on my website. Any abuse agency is going to have those red flags. So learn about it because that too will break down your denial and help you be ready to go. It's also important to invest in yourself um, and your education or your earning capacity because you're going to have to take care of yourself. And it might be that you have to ask somebody for money, ask for a loan or ask a family member to give you money. I had to do that but you have to take all of these steps so that you can get free safely. And you can also take the dramatic step of calling a hotline and going to a shelter. I mean, you can do that now. And if your life is in danger, you should. But for most people, it goes better if you very sort of slowly, carefully plan how you're going to get out and how you're going to take care of yourself and your children if you have them. Because this is a very dramatic syndrome. It's built on drama and roller coaster emotions. And it's best if you can really slowly get out and take
0: care of yourself. Now you have children, you have two daughters and a son. Uh, Let's start with your daughters, if it's different. Um, What advice do you give them as they attempt to date?
1: Well, I guess the most important thing is that I I don't tell my daughter something different than my son, because men can be abused just as easily as women. Mm -hmm. Not quite so much physically, but emotionally for sure. And I want my kids to not ever be in an abusive relationship. And I also want them to never abuse anybody. It's not monsters who abuse other people. Unhealthy relationships happen all the time and almost all of us engage in them at some point. So what I've done with my kids is from the time they were really young, I talked to them about my first marriage and I talked to them about the, my crazy love story. And you know, they heard me practice my TED Talk 100 times. They could probably give that TED Talk themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I was really open with them about it.
0: Mm-hmm
1: because that's the kind of mom I am, but also because I thought it was the best way to try to inoculate them against making the same mistake, is to give them a lot of knowledge. And you know, it it could happen to anybody. It could happen to my kids. It could happen to me again. But I think my kids show signs of really understanding what an unhealthy relationship is, and I don't think it's going to happen to them. And if it did happen to them, I would be there to help them. I wouldn't judge them at all. But it's really important to talk to kids about it. And also, kids, not in my case, because my kids didn't grow up in an abusive home, but most kids have some understanding of abuse because they see it in their own families or they see it in the families of their friends. 15 million kids are abused every year, according to the Centers for Disease Control. So it's really common. So this isn't a taboo subject. If you don't talk to children about abuse and unhealthy relationships, all you're doing is telling them that they can't talk about it and they can't talk to you about it. I'm also on the board of the One Love Foundation, which is a great organization that has a lot of information about how to talk to kids about abuse and teenage dating violence and how kids can recognize it themselves. So that's another really great resource. Um, and I use it even today when I have to talk to my kids about it or talk to anybody about abuse. So there are a lot of resources out there, but again, Jill, the most important thing is just find a way to talk about it. Make it kind of a, an open subject so that anytime your children, your friends, your family, their friends have any kind of unhealthy dynamic in a relationship, they know that they can talk to you about it.
0: So if you're in an abusive relationship and you have young children, at what age can you talk to your children about it? It's hard for parents to talk about it because
1: they don't want to badmouth the the abusive parent. And they're also there, they you have to be very careful. It's very difficult to leave an abuser, and you have to do it slowly and carefully. And also, our family court system is really quite treacherous for abuse victims, and you are going to need somebody who understands abusive dynamics to help you safely get out of the relationship with your children and with custody. Um, But I think what the best thing to do is to tell them a limited version of the truth because too much truth is probably too much for kids to handle. But lying to children is never a good idea, no matter what is going on. And so what I did in my case was I I was just very matter of fact with my kids. Mm -hmm. It would have been harder if my abuser had been their father. It's also hard because kids don't want to hear that about a parent. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think the advice for how to talk about abuse with your kids is the same for how you talk to a victim who you think is being abused is that for the most part you stay close to them and you, you're supportive but don't badmouth the abuser and when they are ready to talk about it validate them so like if i had a child with my abuser i would probably wait for them to come and say something to me about something that had happened and then i would validate it and believe them and talk to them about strategies Um, And I would communicate to them that any kind of abuse is wrong. But I think if you take the lead and say, hey, kids, I just want to tell you, you know, your dad, who you think is a hero, is really, he's a monster. That's not really going to get you anywhere, Um, even though you might very much feel like you're telling the truth. It's not going to be helpful information to your child. And I think it's very important in any sort of divorce situation to try to see your your ex-partner through your children's eyes. And start there and proceed slowly and see how it goes.
0: Now, your book, Crazy Love, is an amazing book about your journey. And now you've written a new one, The Naked Truth. Um, Can you tell us about those? Well, the two most important things that I have done
1: as a, a survivor of domestic violence was to write Crazy Love, my memoir, which just tells the story of what it's like to meet and to fall in love with and then to leave an abusive man. It's very straightforward. Oh, you can't put it down. It goes very quickly and it's a very dramatic story as these things are. And that was very important for me to do. But then also the TED Talk that I did about why victims stay is also a great way for people, anybody out there listening who wants to understand more about abuse dynamics, read Crazy Love or listen to the TED Talk and you'll you'll get a really good start in it. And it was transformational for me to do those two things, to really come out and say, I was an abuse victim, I'm not ashamed of it, and I want to help people. Very empowering for me. Just remember, it took me 10 years. Um, my latest book is a lot lighter, but in many ways to me, just as important a book as Crazy Love, because it's the story of what happened at the end of my second marriage. So I was married to my kid's father for 20 years. He was not abusive. I don't have any allegations about him or anything like that, except that he really neglected me and wasn't in love with me. And when we got divorced, I was just really lost and I had lost my marriage. I lost myself. And I just saw, I had a crazy idea. (laughs) (laughs) which was that to find myself, I was going to have five boyfriends for a year. And this is the kind of thing that basically every man who gets divorced at 50 does. But it was revolutionary because women are not supposed to do this. Because it was the most wonderful way to build myself back up. After I had done it and sort of like gotten it all out of my system, I decided to write about it. And it's a story about rediscovering yourself and what it's like to be a, a woman confronting aging in America. Oh yeah, which is so hard to begin with. I love being an older woman. I and I feel so confident. I'm confident in my soul, I'm confident in my body. I couldn't care less that I'm like more wrinkled and saggy and all that stuff because I feel so sexual and sensual and I just I'm just comfortable in my own skin. I think because of everything I've been through um, and everything that I've written about. I and I I think that we need a lot more women shouting from the rooftops about how great it is to be an older woman. Older women in our country, we're supposed to be invisible. We're not supposed to age, we're just supposed to go away. And I found that all of my five boyfriends, and the truth is there are many more than five, but I wrote about five of them. By coincidence, they were all younger. And they made me feel so appreciated. So that's what The Naked Truth was about. And it was so much fun to live it and to write about it and to just, in the way that Crazy Love is a very pro-woman, empowered woman story, survivor story, The Naked Truth is too. It's sort of like a sequel to it. Like, because the real story of both books is getting in touch with yourself and being your own best friend and your own champion and cheerleader. And I think it's a wonderful time to be a woman. It's a very exciting time, but you have to throw off a lot of stereotypes about what it is to be a woman and what it is to be a wife and your value as a woman, a wife and mother. And both of those books, Crazy Love and The Naked Truth, were real journeys for me to, to live and to write. And I think it's a journey to read them as well.
0: Oh, well, I can't wait to read your new one. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing this information. I know you are such an incredible help to women all over.
1: Well, Jill, thank you for your work in this area as well. And I really appreciate you being such a strong, smart, beautiful, authentic woman and for sharing your journey with me and with the world. And you know, I think that part of the answer here is no matter what our challenges um, and life circumstances to try to shine the light for other women, because I think it's how we help each other the most is just being real and being honest and not judging each other feeling a lot of compassion. And you know, we're, we're all in this together. You know, we, we all have our struggles and our triumphs and it helps me so much to connect with other women like you.
0: Yeah. Well, well, we have to take our blinders off and forget everything our cultures taught us about being women and then start living our lives, which is a huge (laughs) challenge. It's so true. And it's it's easier done together. You know, we can't do this alone. Um, We have to remind each other of it too and support each other. But again, thank you so much, Leslie. You are awesome. And I hope you come back on this soon. If you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. For info and links on our guests, go to our website, thenewfeminist.net, and make sure to subscribe. We always love to hear from you. If you have someone you think we should speak to, let us know. And make sure to follow on Instagram at thenewfeministofficial. We'll be back in two weeks with a new podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Joel Sorensen. Thanks for listening. Our producers are Sienna Jackson and Jill Sorensen. Our executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Lucy Baker Swinburne. Original music by Richard Baskin. Until our next episode, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The New Feminist, brought to you by Electrocast Media. So keep listening to Electric cat Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid.